for Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose. I'm Ken Beaulieu. As companies race to compete on data, algorithms, and machine learning, they often lose sight of what's far more valuable, humanity. In his book, Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data, Rashad Tabakawala makes the compelling argument that the world has too much math and too little meaning. He believes the key to creating and sustaining a great company is to balance technology and human thoughts, interactions, and feelings in the workplace. In other words, to never place too much trust in spreadsheets and data-driven insights unless they're inspired by people, culture, and purpose, and fueled by great storytelling. Rashad, the former chief growth officer of the Publicis Group, who was hailed by Time Magazine as one of the top innovators, joins me to discuss some of the key learnings from his new book. Rashad, welcome to Beyond Profit. Thank you very much. It's, I'm really glad to be here. Terrific. So I really loved your book, Rashad. The advice was so spot on, especially at a time when we're all told to be data obsessed. So what was the impetus for writing the book? There were two reasons that I wrote the book. One was because of a stimulus that I was beginning to see where businesses were tilting, especially marketing businesses and clients, were tilting very much towards the spreadsheet, which is to the data of the business, and were forgetting the people, the culture, the meaning, or what I call the story of the business. And there were two reasons I was concerned. One was marketing by its very nature is about story and hearts and people choosing with their hearts versus using just numbers to justify the decision. Because if everything was a numerical decision, there would be no marketing, there'd be no advertising, and there'd be no brands. So my basic belief was that you were going down this particular path, which was pretty ridiculous. The other is outside of two or three companies, which are mainly the platform players like a Google or Facebook and Amazon. I sincerely do not believe that any company can differentiate itself in the middle or long term, primarily on data. Data can be just one ingredient, but it can't be the real differentiator because in many ways, I think data is like electricity, which is without electricity, companies cannot survive, but very few companies differentiate on electricity. And so there were these two issues, which is, hey, you are going headfirst into making decisions that will not differentiate you. And two, you're going headfirst into things which are all about the spreadsheet when every brand combines spreadsheet and story. So that was one primary reason which I was very worried that agencies, clients, everybody was making, I thought, a mistake which I needed to warn them against. But there was a second reason. And the second reason was for the book is not only was this issue of story and spreadsheet about the math and data of a business, but I was beginning to see it impact cultures of businesses. 56% of businesses, employees and businesses are disengaged. And I was finding a crisis of leadership, both on the marketer side, agency side, media owner side, where instead of standing up as leaders, we were basically just reading out numbers or saying the stock market made us do something. My thing was, that's pretty ridiculous. And so my whole thing is, hey, for us to grow both as individuals, companies, and teams, we need to see, think, and feel differently. And that's what this book is about. Are you saying, in essence, that business people, your marketers in particular, are getting away from trusting their gut? More than that, I basically believe that marketers trusted three different things simultaneously. They trust data, 
They trusted qualitative consumer feedback and they trusted their gut. So they looked around the world. They felt what was going around their world. Then they had the gut instinct of their own experience. And then they had the data and they were dumping the latter too, just for the data. So here's basically, eventually a gut decision, almost anybody who makes a gut decision integrates data into the gut decision. It's not like they just make a gut decision, you know, without any information. But then they say, you know, I'm going to add more. So in, in fact, in my opening chapter, which is called Too Much Maths, Too Little Meeting, I actually break down what is what people used to call as gut as six different things that people have to do. And my whole stuff is we are forgetting these six things, like, for instance, including lots of different people in your decision making or imagining or interrogating the data to see if it's right. Those things we forget and we simply say the data told us to do this. And my thing is in a data-driven age, the more you say the data doesn't is to do this without doing these six eyes, you're going to make bad decisions. So you state in your book, quote, becoming more like a machine makes us lose our futures, but being more human protects us. I'm hoping you can elaborate on that. Yeah. So to a great extent, I believe that companies, organizations, and business lives for people and not just for profit. That Profit actually comes because you serve people, both your customers, you look after people, which are your employees, because the happier employee, the more engaged employee, the better idea, the better customer service, and the better customers outside. But you also have to basically care about the society that you live in. And one of my concerns is many advertisers and marketers are funding what they believe is an advertising operating system, which is, that's what I now call Google, Facebook, Amazon. These are supposed to be advertising operating systems, but they're not. They have become so powerful, they are society operating systems. And I began to see young people basically say, you know, when Mark Benioff says some of these platforms are like cigarettes, young people are basically saying, who's funding cigarettes? It's our marketers. And so my whole stuff is like, stand up. In fact, one of the things that I'm really worried about is many marketers have stopped worrying about their own company and the strategic optionality of their own companies. They're basically saying, you know, I got to put more money into all of these things because I get better results. I said, you don't get better results. You aren't actually growing. This particular part of your stuff is growing. It's like being in the hospital and the, the display basically shows that you're getting healthier, but the only person who's getting fatter is the doctor. And my stuff is, give me a break. All of you are struggling to grow. And you're, you're, how can this be working? And you keep dumping more money and say, this component is working. That means everything else is not working. It can't be that. And so that is one of the key things that I've been trying to get people to wake up to the fact you have to think about you know, your strategic optionality. You've got to think about the impact on reputation of your company. You have to think about brands. And you think about the privacy and the other things about data. And if you don't bring those into it, you eventually lose control of your own business, which is one of the reasons I think. And remember, there was this whole thing about CMOs only lasting 18 months or whatever. Now, they're removing CMOs. If you look at companies from Johnson & Johnson onwards, they're eliminating the CMO role. And they're eliminating the CMRO in one of two ways. Either they're elevating the CMO, which is what I believe every CMO should be elevated, the good ones. They should be on the board. They should be the chief growth officer. They should be on the board. My whole stuff is you cannot be a marketing company if you do not have a CMO on the board. You're lying to me. Because in effect, you got finance people on the board. you got technology people on the board. Where the hell is your CMO? So either up them, because marketing is a future of business. It's about business models, experiences, or get rid of them 
or just put them into a unit and say, you know, you're a communication person. So why aren't CMOs on the board, Rashad? I think CMOs are not on the board because historically, marketing has not been taken import has not been taken seriously by most boards. Because for many, many years, until about five to seven years ago, marketing was 80 to 90% primarily about communication and promotion. It was how do you manage your media budgets and how do you manage your distribution and pricing and packaging? And to a great extent, you did not get, you know, it was basically after the product was designed, after the business model was created. Now what basically happens is marketing has become far more important and it's only now that boards have woken up to how important it is. And the reason they've woken up is because in some ways marketers have failed and have limited themselves to thinking this is only about communication. Because let's look at it this way. Let's say when Gillette competes with Chef, eventually when a Dollar Shave Club comes in, it isn't about adding the fifth blade or how much you spend in advertising. Someone comes with a completely new business model. When L'Oreal and Coty are looking at each other and here comes Kylie Jenner with Kendall Cosmetics, Kenna Cosmetics, this is a different business model. When General Motors is looking at Chrysler, but the real risks are Tesla, Uber, and that young people are not wanting to buy cars. So there are significant shifts that are going on, which create massive business models. When you consider the fact that if you put your stuff on Amazon, which you have to, you also have to recognize that Amazon owns the search engine on Amazon. Amazon owns all the data on Amazon. Amazon owns the customer relationship. And, and in effect, Amazon then uses all that data to launch a product against you. At that moment, the board wakes up and says, what the shit's happening? So as more money goes into digital, it becomes a business model challenge. And you've now got people who are focusing on communication. And now the board wakes up and says, wait a second, we've lost strategic optionality. What do you mean you can't spend money? You, you can only spend money on Facebook, Google, and Amazon. By the way, they are not competitive. They're not competed, competing with each other. On the margins, maybe Amazon search competes with Google search. But Google is about search. Amazon is about transactions. And Facebook is about communication. So you intimated earlier that companies are seeking a higher purpose than profit and to benefit society in some tangible way. Is this what you mean leading by with soul? Yes. So my, my basic belief is leading by soul is when you combine the spreadsheet and the story, when you basically combine more than just data. So how do you find the how do you find that right balance between being purposeful and tapping into the power of technology? I believe the reason is I believe technology is the most empowering thing that the world has ever seen. So in effect, what technology has done is it has given us three key things. Outside of the world of marketing and advertising, it has given us better life and it's also given us better healthcare and it's given a whole bunch of other things. But in the world of ad, in our world, in the consumer world, in the consumer world, what I've basically seen us basically do is I have seen us have godlike power. So when you think about what search can do, if you if, if you can see if you can if you can see what a mobile phone does, right? It allows me to basically connect all the time to anybody, connect to all the information in the world, do all amazing things. And what that has done and has really made us human beings gods. We are much more than consumers. And so I, I ask marketers and business people to think about, okay, how do we market to the gods? Talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you, that you faced at Publicis Group in terms of fusing that technology with humanity. There are two parts of, I think, you know, the challenges that we basically have. The one thing that I basically do think that we have pretty significantly is that our marketers, our clients have become, unfortunately, to a certain extent, 
are struggling with what this is. Who can they trust? Like, are we relevant to them anymore? If this is going to go from being about communication to about business models and about data, you know, do we have the skills to serve them? That's a big issue. We basically have sort of, we have thought that, yes, we do have the skills. And we basically have, in order to make sure that we have the skills, we've spent in our own company $8 billion in the last five years buying companies like Sapient and Epsilon. Because we do recognize that our traditional skills are not good enough. And we need to add additional skills. That's number one. Number two, the challenge for us is how do you in a world where increasingly now the solution is an integrated solution, how do we basically make sure that we incorporate and recombine skill sets, not necessarily companies or brands, but skill sets to serve our clients? Because our clients basically are asking for three key things. Hey, we want amazing ideas, amazing business models, amazing communication, because we need to basically sell profitably. And at the same time, we're under significant pressure, both on the cost side as on, and on the speed side. So how do we basically ensure that we basically have both cash, you know, cost effectiveness thing and speed? You mentioned that one of the challenges is building trust with your clients. How do you go about doing that? There are two or three ways that I think we can build trust with our client. And I think we're slowly doing it. One, to a great extent, is complete transparency. And, you know, one of the key things is, since this is an ANA thing, you know, in the ANA, you know, when we had all that four or five years ago with all the detectives running around, I know that publicist itself, we went through like 35 or 40 audits and we passed all of them. So to a great extent, what tends to basically happen is transparency so the client doesn't believe that you are doing anything that's not to their benefit, which is number one. The second thing, which is a leadership thing, which I used to do definitely for my clients and I used to do when I was running smaller units, is be very clear that if the economics do not make sense for me to hire world-class people and talent, the economics will not make sense for me to serve you. That, that, that the reality of it is we are making a big mistake about the price of an arrow versus the price of the archer. And to me, what basically happens is you, we've got to have very good archers and archeresses. If you do not have world-class talent, you cannot actually win. One of my biggest concerns and the reason I've also basically written this book is I truly believe that talent is leaving the marketing industry. More talent actually from the client side than the agency side, but let's say equal right? But talent is leaving because we have taken what is a massive growth, amazing idea base where technology can help us. We're now going into business models. We're going into all kinds of incredible things. And we've basically made it into an environment where everybody's talking about how do we lower costs, how nobody trusts each other, how everything is basically done on a project basis. Tell me what human being wants to work in an industry like this. When the world-class talent can work in other places, that's the leadership challenge. The leadership challenge is, I believe on every side, we are not facing the real issues. We are running. We're not basically calling. Like for instance, I remember like three, four years ago, three years ago, when I called out Facebook, everybody said, well, how dare you call them out? My stuff is bullshit. Now everybody calls them out, stand up, it's your money. And this is what I don't understand. I, I keep saying, I said, hey, do you really need a job so badly, client, that you have to be nice to people? Let's build on the talent challenge a bit, Rashad. You make the argument in your book that the power has shifted from the organization to the employee in recent years. What are the factors behind the shift? There are two different kinds of industries, uh, which I very quickly break out. One is the industry where there is a great 
greater supply of talent than there is demand for talent. And that obviously occurs in places like where there is a greater supply than demand is, you know, if you want to basically be a um, sort of an Uber driver, there are more cars and more people who can drive. On the other hand, when you're basically looking for people who have ideas, people who can be very good with data, people who can understand the future of marketing, people who are broad-based, I think there is a significant lack of supply compared to demand. So there are two industries. So I believe that the marketing industry, in most cases, there is, we are a bifurcated industry. There are a few of us, there's a few of, there's half of the industry where there's probably a little bit more supply than demand, but the other half where there's much more demand than supply. And So I'm speaking primarily to that piece. So in that particular piece, you're looking at the following things with these individuals. Number one, I'm sitting out here and I'm basically, let's say I'm a young person joining the business, like I'm in the first five, 10 years of the business. And many of those people, by the way, have the skills we need. It may not be like old fogies like me who are completely irrelevant, but maybe like these younger, the first, they are people who are between five and 10, 12 years in the business or zero and 10 years in the business. Those people. So those people grown up with digital who understand data, et cetera, et cetera. Now, they basically have the following. Number one is they're highly multicultural. So as I tell people, under 18 in the United States is already Caucasian minority. So they look up and say, who's our leaders? That's number one. More women are coming out of school than there are men. So they look up and say, who's our leaders? So first is we have to make sure that we understand we're looking at a multi-gender, multicultural space. That's number one. Number two, these clowns, they actually compare information. They compare salaries. We used to say never tell anybody. Here they actually compare it all the time. They actually comment. So there's this thing called fishbowl, company by company, what the conversations are going on. Most management isn't even looking at it. I said, hey, they're talking about you. They're comparing about you and you're sitting there like a little fool, not knowing what's going on. So what is they have? They have the balance of power or information that we used to have they have the information. The other is they also recognize that most companies and most bosses are disappearing in three years and most companies don't last more than 10 to 15 years. They're 50 year careers. And so their whole stuff is why should I be loyal to you? And so we have to basically build things that are not necessarily numerical because the moment you tell people I'm going to pay you more right now for the next year or two and that's basically it, they'll say as soon as you can't pay me, I'm gone. So we have to basically invest in things like training. We have to invest in uh, their ability to grow. And so what I found out and in my book, I have this entire thing, which is why are 56% of people in business disengaged? Because we basically try to keep them with the following three things, fame, power, and money. Now, when you're earlier in the career, you can't have fame, you have limited power. And let's say we give them money, but we really can't give them that much money relative to the platforms and a whole bunch of other people. So we have to give them something else. So what is what they're looking for? They're looking for growth, their own personal growth. They're looking for purpose and meaning of the company they're working for. So say they're proud. And many of the marketers I work for, I would be, I'm proud that I recognize, I'm associated with them. And therefore, I think their employees would be proud to work there. And then the other ones are looking for connections, which is, do they have other smart people? Do they believe their bosses? Do they have good partners? That human thing is so very important. And when we don't give it to them, they basically say we are going to leave. And so what is starting to happen is we always, I always build teams basically believing that I was lucky to have the people around me. Increasingly, I'm now seeing people who believe that they are just, that people are lucky to work for them. And my whole stuff is that is the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. You're talking a lot about the younger talent and millennials and Gen Z and uh, the whole industry is a buzz about them. But is there still a place for older workers? Yes. So, for instance, there are two groups of people for whom I think there's place for everybody because talent is we use the word talent, but they're not enough talented people. And when you get talented people, it makes a big difference. 
And just like sports teams, a company with a disproportionate share of talent that is passionately aligned against an outcome will win. But you've got to basically have disproportionate share of talent. And my basic belief is, and I did speak at one of the ANA conferences, that one of my big concerns is we talk about lots of isms. So we talk about how important it is to ensure that we have, that we pay attention to gender, that we pay attention to ethnic diversity. And I believe those are extremely, extremely important. But here's one thing that is common to all of us, whether we are a woman, whether we are black, whether we are white, we're all going to grow old. And what we aren't talking about enough is do we have enough opportunities in this industry for when people get older? This is a very, if you look at it, people about 50 sort of disappear from this industry. And they disappear for three reasons, all of which I believe are unfair. But And therefore, we, we can't afford to lose them. So we have to work to make sure we fix it. The first is there is a belief that when you're older, you don't get it. And so my whole stuff is I just want to remind people a very simple thing that I started doing all this digital stuff when I was four years old. So for the first 20 years of my career, there was none of this stuff. I'm now 60 years old. And yes, I stopped getting it maybe when I was 10, but I still pretend that I get it. So the one thing is the ability to basically learn and grow is nothing to do with age. Now, I'm not basically, you know, trying to basically play basketball or run. That's not what the marketing business is about. We're not a sports team. So there, there shouldn't be an age problem. That's number one. The second one, and this is the one that I think I'm most worried about, is because as you get older, if you're fortunate, you get paid more. Because people are basically trying to reduce costs, they're basically replacing older people with younger people because the younger people are less expensive. And my thing is, here's the key thing. First of all, that's very stupid because the older people also happen to have skill sets. We have a thing called experience. And as I say, new brooms sweep clean, but the old brooms know the corners. And if you basically begin to build, when everybody's going to get older, and you build basically a company manifesto or in the back where you're getting rid of older people, why would anybody young stay in that company? So think about it because everybody does get older. I kind of remind them, okay, I may not be able to become a woman or I might not be able to become a Caucasian person you know, unless I basically become a Bruce Jenner or Michael Jackson. But what basically happens is I am going to get older. So that's the other part of the human thing, which is we are forgetting that all of us are humans. And then the third one, which I'm most worried about, is the fact that Every day, 10,000 people in the United States turn 60. A disproportionate share of our population, especially now that we're not allowing immigration, is going to get older in this country. And so the future marketers are going to be older. We are going to get older. And we are supposed to be reflecting the marketplace and we don't. And so my whole stuff is strategically, it doesn't make sense. From a human perspective, it doesn't make sense. And from basically a perspective that we don't get it, that doesn't make sense. And we need to actually speak up about it because, in effect, it is an issue. It is a very big issue, and we need to make sure that we step up. Because the other thing is, remember, even the stuff that they have in Silicon Valley is all wrong. So Silicon Valley is proportionately like this. You know, they've got young white men who basically write algorithmic codes because they sit at home and they therefore are fixated on delivery services, which are stupid businesses anyway. And, and so my whole stuff is that's part of it. This is a big part of it. When I speak to clients and I speak to very senior marketers, when we have drinks, I basically say, what are, what are the three things that are worrying you? And always one of the things is basically, you know, me and my companies, like you guys, are you relevant? You know, you suck, whatever, whatever. I said, fine, go try to fix that, right? Then there are two other things. 
the other two things are the ones that I pay attention to because I already know I suck. But what are the other two things? The other two things are the following. Is my company, my business model, and the way I'm thinking about marketing and brand building relevant anymore? But this is the other one that's particularly amazing. Am I relevant anymore? And this is one of the reasons I wrote a chapter in my book on how to upgrade your mental operating system. Because client after client was asking me, how did you do this? How did you learn all these new things? Because they said like, hey, you idiot, you've been around for 38 years. So you should be like well past your sell-by date and you're pretending you're not. How did you do it? Rashad, another interesting finding or learning from your book is the fact that, that you advocate scheduling more meetings as long as they're meaningful. Talk about that a bit more. A couple of things. You know, one of the things in my book is you probably have, if anybody reads it and as you know, you can read any chapter in any order. And the reason was because I realized that most business books had the same chapter repeated 12 times. So I said, that's pretty stupid. So I wrote 12 different chapters. And what connects them is the story and the spreadsheet. You can read any in any order. And one of my the chapters that is most resonating is this one, which is have more meetings. And it's resonating for two reasons. One is because it's counterintuitive. And I spend a lot of time obviously reading the literature and what I was hearing was all about the following two things. Minimize the number of meetings that you go to and only go to meetings where you can extract value. And I realized that I built my entire career on maximizing the number of in-person meetings I go to and going to meetings where I could add value, not necessarily where I could extract value. And so I said, like, why is it? And then people said, hey, that's one of the reasons you've actually succeeded, fool, is because of this thing. So I said, what is it? And here's what it was. It wasn't, it was the type of meetings that we were scheduling, that ones that we were trying to avoid were basically meetings that are not really meetings. You know what they are? Is they are gatherings around screens full of numbers. That's not a meeting. So a whole bunch of people get together and say, let's do the monthly marketing update. Let's do the weekly financial update. Let's do the whatever. My whole thing is, why do you have to have a meeting about that? Just send the information to people and then say, if people have a comment, we'll talk about it. And then have a meeting where people come not looking at the screen and let's just talk about it. So in effect, to me, a meeting is a where you have minimum number of electronic devices. None, if possible. A meeting is where you basically look at the other person or look at the other three or four people in the meeting and you'll have real discussions. And therefore I then break up the five type of meaningful meetings, including what I call the unknown meeting. When someone asks me for a meeting, I always have a meeting with them because of a very simple thing. If you ask me for a meeting and as long as I know you're not an assassin, I don't have a meeting with you. Then the, then the reality of it is I have already won because you are grateful that I've had a meeting. So that added value and I built my brand. That's number one. Number two, I might learn things. And one out of three times when I've had these meetings where someone has said, I have no clue what they're talking about and they come and they talk to me, I learn about things that I never knew. So one is there, which is a way to basically have no meetings. And then I have these other meetings, which is the Jerry Maguire meeting, which is the meetings we don't tend to have, which I fortunately was allowed to have, where I would go to my management and say, what the hell are you doing? Or what the hell are we doing as a company? The woodshed meeting, which we try to avoid, which is sitting with someone and saying, you know, you're not doing a good job. But the two meetings which I find most interesting is the one that we don't do, which is called can I help you meeting, which is we wait for people to ask us for help. Why don't we go to someone and say, hey, can I help you? And that's a very meaningful meeting where you can help your company, you can help somebody else. And by the way, they like you. So the can I help you meeting can happen long before you have to have a woodshed meeting. And then the last one, which is my favorite type of meetings, is let's have a beer, which is let's just get together with people 
and get to know them. And my thing increasingly is if you don't know somebody, you know, we talk about human and insights and everything else, and then we hide behind screens. What the hell? Sounds to me, Richard, essentially what you're saying here is be human at these meetings. That's what you're looking for. I'm looking for exactly to be human, to look at people, to have. And then what happens, by the way, when you do that, you build understanding a relationship about the perspective about the person. And then all the other meetings that you have with the people, whether it's on the phone or Slack channel or Skype or whatever, they actually are more meaningful because you'll have established a human connection. I'm not saying every meeting should be human and without screens, but these are the type of meetings we need to have. So I want to segue a bit here. Rashad, you're the chairman of the Tobaccawala Foundation, and that's helped more than 10,000 people gain better access to health and education in India. I'd love to hear more about that. One of the things that I was, I did is I was very lucky because my, my parents who grew up without much money ended up being relatively successful, but they always sort of reminded me, and one of the things that I remember is we we used to stay in this apartment building and my parents would point down, my dad would point down, you know, to the street where there was a light some far away. And he says, you know, when I was young, I used to study under that light because I didn't have electricity. And he said, I would walk and I went to the same school that he did. And I would walk from there to school, which is about like three miles every day because I did not have money for the bus. In memory of my parents, what we did is we launched a thing called the Tobacco Wallet Foundation, which focuses on two areas, which is healthcare and education. And in each of those, uh, we don't create new things. What I do is I find organizations that are doing tremendous things and we basically provide them with funds so they can continue to do tremendous things. And there's the bias we have is to people who are particularly still not taken seriously enough in India. So one group, obviously, is anybody who's like, we fund a lot of girls' schools. We need to, because girls are still not taken as seriously as they need to be in India. So we, we fund that, which is, we, if girls get educated, that's amazing. If young people get educated, that's amazing. And then the other one is people on the fringes where because of religion or other things, they're considered to be lesser like, for instance, handicapped people or autistic people, because there's a part of India which basically says, you know, if these kids were born this way, it's because they did something bad in their previous life. And I don't buy that. So the whole idea is there are people who are like helping them. And these teachers, which are amazing teachers, uh, work at these amazing schools, but private schools are willing to pay them two and a half times as much. So what my foundation goes and does is we basically say, you're being paid X, the outside world is paying 2.5x why don't we make it 1.75x and they'll say we'll stay for that because they really want to do this so what we do is in that particular case we help retain teachers for the girls school we found that the girls were not going enough to school because they couldn't get there so we basically bought buses and we transport them so there are things like that that we do which is pretty interesting in our foundation because most foundations spends a lot of time. Good foundations spend you know, about 85% of their money on doing good and 15% either running or raising funds. In my foundation, we basically have 98.5% goes to doing good. And the only 1.5% to run the foundation is for legal reasons, which is we have to have a lawyer, we have to have an accountant, and we have to have an office. 
So we have to pay for that. But almost everybody who does that and works in it are doing it pro bono. And because we're not starting our own thing, we're already we're helping things that are already going. It leverages the dollars. So I've learned all the I've learned all the marketing stuff here, and I put it in there. What has the foundation meant to you personally? And I'm just curious whether that what you're most proud of. Are there other things looking back at your career that you feel supersede that? I think the you know the three things that I'm proudest of are, which I sort of mention in my book, are my three families. So the foundation is basically in the memory of the family that I was born into, which is my parents, etc., and what they achieved. And so that's the one. The second family is my own family, the family I made, which is my wife and two daughters. And you know, my wife and I met when we were 12, and my two daughters are very successful and but more importantly they like each other they like us and they are good people and third is my publicist family where i've spent 38 years of my career and right now i've sort of moved to an advisory role but i was there full-time for 38 years and the impact both the chances they gave me and hopefully some of the work i did for them so those are the three families that i'm sort of very happy about and and i stay connected to which is one of the reasons that even though I've sort of stepped down from day to day, I still like an emeritus professor, hang around publicists, you know, some black sheep they can't get rid of. Well, Rashad, I've, I've greatly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me in Beyond Profit. Well, thank you for having me and I uh, hope this worked out. Terrific. Until next time, thanks for listening.